Well, in Matthew chapter 2, the last few weeks, uh, we have been on this amazing journey of um, exploring God's words. Anybody like journeys? Who likes journeys here, right? Now, believe it or not, I, I love road trips, right? And, and true story. Um, you know, you know. For those of you that have Microsoft-based computers, um, they provide these wonderful pictures for you when you first open up your, you know, laptop or whatever. And it's always it's fun for me. I don't know about you, but once in a while, to just say, "Oh yeah, where's that picture?" Well, there was one that came up this week that caught my attention in particular. I'm like, "Where is that place?" And so I looked and uh, explored a little bit. And here, the location was Last Dollar Road. It was called in Colorado. And uh, I love the picture so much. It actually started me thinking. We hadn't yet planned our vacation for 2024. And uh, usually we're on top of that. Like by now, we know where we're going and all that kind of stuff. And uh, those have been important to us over the years with our family. And uh, we don't have something in mind. So, And because I love road trips, I was like, babe, I said, Kelly, let's, let's take a road trip to Colorado and find Last Dollar Road. I don't know about you, but I hear that title. I'm just like, what What was in that? Like, what caused somebody to name it Last Dollar Road? I mean, you know, it was the guy down to his last dollar, literally, right? But but the view was amazing, so I don't know. Maybe we'll take a road trip to – I was like, let's just jump in the car. Let's go spend the night and come back. And that doesn't thrill her, but it thrills me, right? Uh, so I don't know. Uh, we'll see if that happens. I'll let you know. But uh, – but the, the thought is that some journeys aren't quite so fun, are they? Right? The journey we have been on of looking at two of the prophecies surrounding the birth of Jesus. Each was, in a sense, a road trip, if you will, for Mary and Joseph. The first was, of course, their journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know, when Caesar Augustus gave the decree that he was going to have a census, uh, he thought he was doing his own thing, but really he was doing God's thing, wasn't he? Because that's how Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem. And of course, as we talked about from Micah 5.2, there was prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so as uncomfortable as that journey was for Mary, probably being uh, late in her pregnancy, um, inconvenience, you know, lots of people, no room in the inn, all of that kind of stuff, God worked in that to point us to the fact here is the Messiah. And then after some time in Bethlehem, not sure how long Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem at this point, but some wise men showed up, right? And they bowed down and worshiped Jesus. They gave to him gifts that were meant for a king. And then there was this unexpected escape to Egypt out of Herod's jurisdiction, right? Out of a, a, a place where he was not in control, where he wasn't able to find Jesus because he was jealous that a new king had been born, and of course, kings don't like rivals, right? So we knew what he wanted to do, and uh, and so these prophecies aren't just fun facts about Christmas that you can use on a trivia night, right? Uh, these prophecies are incredibly significant, uh, along with many others about Jesus. They're meant to be these super clear signs and indicators of Jesus was the Messiah, the one whom the Jewish people were waiting for, the one who we didn't even know it as Gentiles, but the one we were waiting for as well, right? The anointed one. And so God, we realize it was so intentional, uh, removing all doubt, eliminating any question about who Jesus was. I think that's what these prophecies were intended to do, is be this bright neon light pointing to Jesus. Now, God was so intentional and I think made things so clear, but the question is, right, where are we at it? Are we willing to receive what God is pointing to us? 
right? That's, that's our place in this divine human kind of cooperation, if you will, in what we refer to as salvation, uh, being saved and, and being reconciled with God. God. God is abundantly clear. He has sent his son, and, but our place of faith, right? God plants that seed within us. Do we respond to that in our own uh, choice of saying, yes, I agree and I believe. And so that's our part in it as well. But God has made things clear. That's the wow factor of the Christmas story, if you will. So we've asked a question along the way as well. What does fulfilled prophecy teach us about God? So if we look beyond the wow factor, what does this really teach us about God? Well, we've talked about that God is trustworthy, uh, that, that God is always at work for his glory and our good. And that good is not our comfort and our convenience and so on, but it's, it's our becoming like Jesus. God works in that way to, to bring us more and more. That's why this message that we sing about is a message of transformation. It's not just a feel-good story. It doesn't miss, you know, just make for great fireside conversations. It, it, it's, it's a story of transforming one's life. So we've talked about God as trusted. We've talked about God as sovereign, that he's in control. In the midst of all of these details, we realize what does fulfilled prophecy teach us about God, that he can work in such a way where he's taking uh, circumstances from sometimes uh, more than a thousand years before, right? And he's working it in such a way where, man, here it is. And, and what does that teach us about his sovereignty, the plan that he is working? Well, today the prophecy I want to talk about, as Davis already alluded to with the kids, is that great sorrow would accompany the birth of Jesus. That great sorrow would accompany the birth of Jesus. Now, if you were tracking in the scriptures last week, as we talked about that uh, prophecy of Hosea and that the, the, the Messiah would come out of Egypt, um, you may be thought we were going to skip over this particular part of Matthew 2. But we're going to dig into it today, right? And it's the part where when, when uh, wise men spoke with Herod, Herod played nice but used the wise men to you know, try to get to Jesus to kill him. God warns the wise men to go home a different way. So uh, Herod never found out where Jesus was. And, of course, that makes him angry. And uh, God warns Mary and Joseph to, to head to Egypt with Jesus. And so what comes next is so disturbing and quite unpleasant. Um, and it's and so much so that it's not really often talked about in the Christmas story. Uh, but Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And here's Matthew's great statement here that we see multiple times in his gospel account. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping with her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And so we, we see this hideous act carried out by a brutal and paranoid leader of the day. Herod knew that the birth of Jesus was a prophecy, as the high priests and scribes had already informed him. Uh, he's setting himself up, therefore, to, against God, right, to somehow try and, and prevent this prophecy that God had ordained. And his failure, of course, added to the sin and misery of the world in the murdering of these infant boys. 
How many baby boys? Right? How many? And that's been a matter of debate over the years. But as we understand, Bethlehem was not a large town, probably ranged anywhere from a few hundred people to maybe a thousand people. So if you break that down into families, how many baby boys were present? Um, and, and maybe in the surrounding area, you know, Herod would have wanted to make sure that he, he got Jesus. And so how far out from Bethlehem, we're not sure. But so maybe anywhere from a dozen to three dozen uh, babies were killed in, in this uh, uh, murderous event by wicked uh, King Herod. And so, uh, and, and as we note this too, like as we look at the, kind of some of the similarities of this, the stories of the scriptures, uh, remember when Moses was born, what did Pharaoh, uh, what was the context there of, of what Pharaoh had already commanded was to kill all of the male children of the Hebrew people. And so we see like, man, this wasn't the first time something like this had happened among God's people. And so we see these rising up of, of these earthly leaders, these kings who tried to squelch the plan of God. David commented on it in Psalm chapter 2 and verse 2. He says this, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he goes on to say in verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Right? So Herod obviously didn't take refuge in the birth of Jesus. He tried to prevent it. He tried to, to fight against this prophecy that God had ordained. And, um, and we see uh, the, the suffering that existed because of it. Where do we see this particular prophecy of Jeremiah? Well, it's found in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 15. Pretty much as Matthew quotes it. It says, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So let's unpack this a little bit. Hang in here with me as we talk about some details of what's the context of this particular statement of Jeremiah. When did it take place and what was happening in the world around him? Well, as we know in history, right, Israel, there was a point after uh, King Solomon, which Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom contained 10 of the tribes of Israel. The southern kingdom contained two of the tribes, and, and that's where Jerusalem was the capital in the southern kingdom. In the last two weeks, we've noted Micah and Hosea, prophets who prophesied to the northern kingdom. And uh, their prophecy was that, hey, listen, you need to repent and, and begin to live in obedience to God or else the Assyrians will come and take you captive. And that's already happened by the time Jeremiah rolls around. So Jeremiah was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Israel. And uh, as noted by Davis as well, the name Jeremiah means Yahweh will exalt. So in this time when Jeremiah is talking to the southern part of the, the kingdom, right, the, the Jerusalem and so on, he's saying, listen, you need to repent and live in obedience or else there will be discipline by God for your disobedience. Uh, even in Jeremiah's name that God gave to him, there's a glimmer of hope. Yahweh will exalt. Um, so we see God always uh, with this foundation of hope. So by the years that Jeremiah prophesied, um, uh, we read that in 586 B.C., and history will uh, uh, claim this as well, that that's when Babylon came and took captive and finally ultimately destroyed Jerusalem, 
And uh, that's when uh, the story of Daniel begins. In the book of Daniel, some of you are familiar with that. You have these four guys, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we most often refer to them as by their Babylonian names. But, but these guys, when, when Babylon came, they destroyed Jerusalem. They, they tore down the temple and all of this, and, and, and they killed many. Um, and then they took, off, they took away many that were of the best. And Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were of those that were taken to Babylon. And, um, and, and brought into uh, the, the region there and in the leadership in Babylon. So that's where, this is where the book of Daniel comes in. Um, and so as the siege of, uh, by Babylon took place, God spoke these words through Jeremiah. So you can imagine the destruction that's happening. Uh, you can imagine the weeping that is taking place because of the death that surrounded this, this uh, captivity. By Babylon, and so Jeremiah says, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. The death. So we have to ask some questions. What is Ramah? Well, Ramah is a name of multiple cities in the Bible. There is one particular Ramah that is noted uh, uh, the location of Rachel's death. So as Jeremiah mentions this Rachel, we ask the question, well, who is this Rachel? Well, if we go back in the story a bit, remember God's covenant relationship with Abraham, and we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Rachel was one of the wives of Jacob, and, uh, and Jacob was the one that God eventually renamed Israel, right, which is where we get that name. And so uh, Jeremiah is looking back, so Rachel was one of the wives of of Jacob, who had lived years before, and she uh, gave birth, when she gave birth to Jacob's 12th son, uh, to the 12th and final son, the 12 tribes of Israel around their children, right? she named him, on her deathbed, she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Um, but when Rachel passed, uh, Jacob renamed Ben-Oni to Ben-Yamin, which means, or Benjamin, as we say, which means son of my right hand. And uh, as one of those layers of scripture that's always intriguing to look at, we see both of these names, son of my sorrow and the son of my right hand. Both of these names, again, foreshadowing uh, Jesus. Uh, what did the Old Testament say in Isaiah chapter 3? The prophet Isaiah said that Jesus would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief, right? Son of my sorrows. And in the New Testament, we read about Jesus that when he died and he rose and he ascended into heaven, he's now sitting at the right hand of the Father, right? The Father's own right hand as Prince and Savior. So, son of my right hand. Uh, so, we see these layers of Scripture that just always are fascinating to kind of contemplate. But, but God working. And so, Jeremiah is referring to in Rachel the grief that Rachel experienced uh, in her the death of, of her own death and that she was she was dying as she was delivering uh, Benjamin Jeremiah is taking this past event he's he's placing it upon the grief and suffering that Israel was experiencing the day as they were being taken captive by Babylon and death and the weeping and all like Rachel wept then so we weep now is what Jeremiah was saying it and, and it noted as well in, in Genesis 35 that when uh, when Rachel died, Jacob, her husband, set up a pillar by her grave, and it was a pillar near Bethlehem, and so as the Israelites would journey around Bethlehem over the years, they would have seen this pillar uh, dedicated to 
Rachel. And, and so this, this prophecy takes place in that kind of historic event, reflecting upon the current event of Jeremiah's day. Um, and, and then we look and say, man, uh, the future, as Matthew now records it, right? As he's looking back on Jeremiah's statement, which was about Rachel back here, right? So you see this again, layered effect of the scriptures, how, how prophecy, fulfilled prophecy is just like, man, it's amazing to see how over the course of several hundred years, God just working in such a way. And Matthew's like, man, dude, you get it? Like the suffering that existed around the birth of Jesus, it was something God knew would happen, something that he declared would happen. Uh, and it's one of those bright lights of saying, man, God at work and seeing his prophecy fulfilled. And there's hope in that. And there was hope for the people of Israel. At that time when Jeremiah was giving this prophecy, man, the weeping that was taking place over the destruction and the death in verse 15, we looked at Jeremiah 31, 15. This is why it's good to read around passages of Scripture, too, because if we just go to verse 16, listen to what it says. In Jeremiah 31, verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And this happened after 70 years of exile. The Israelites, in this miraculous way, again, that God worked, uh, was able to come back. And not only that, but they were provided uh, by this you know, uh, foreign king. They were provided with the resources they needed to begin to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, and so God did this. In other words, the grief that Israel experienced wasn't the end of the story. Now, there's another passage in Jeremiah that many of you are familiar with. Maybe you have it hanging on a wall. At your, maybe it's been hanging there so long you even forgot that you have it. So you might want to go home and check and see whether you have this hanging on your wall or not, right? But, but Jeremiah 29, 11, you know it, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel as he was saying to them, listen, you're going to be going into exile. You're going to be disciplined by God for your disobedience for a period of 70 years. But, but don't worry. Keep hope, right? Because there is a future for you. So in the midst of this suffering, there's this thread of hope and this thread of, of, of encouragement to continue to trust the Lord your God, even in the midst of the challenge. So, friend, don't forget that at times that future, right? I mean, how many of us have maybe sent uh, cards with this verse to people, right, encouraging them, God has a future for you. Like, don't forget, though, right? First of all, this was a message spoken particularly to Israel in the context. But if we hold to this promise and we look to this, right, of God, that that future and that hope that comes, it comes through times of pain and suffering at times. That was what. Israel had to understand, and that's what we have to understand. In this world, there is suffering that exists. Um, God grows us through that suffering. And so everything about the Old Testament, right, as we, as we examine these prophecies, as we look at the, the gospel fulfillment in them, and as we think about our lives today, I, I want you to know, like the Scripture declares that everything about the Old Testament is meant to point us to Jesus and to be an example for us. Romans 15.4 says that, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
right? Learn by their example. Learn from the messages of the past so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have, say it with me, hope, right? Through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. All throughout the word of God, whenever there is suffering and hard things like we read about in Matthew chapter 2, we also need to be mindful. God always builds his story upon this foundation of hope. Grief is not the end of the story. Sorrow didn't win in the day of Israel, right, in that time. And sorrow didn't win in Jesus' day either, right? What we read about with Israel points us to Jesus, the ultimate hope. And sorrow didn't win in the day of Jesus either. And this is why Matthew went on to write about the rest of the story, that Joseph obeyed God and went to Egypt, and God told him to remain there until I tell you. And when the time was right, God told Joseph to return to Israel, where Jesus then grows up, where he loved people. He showed us what God is like living in the flesh. He defeated death through the cross and the resurrection. Amen, right? Hopefully you're getting a little excited here. And now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he's interceding for you, he's praying for you, exactly in accordance with the will of the Father. Hope, right? Hope, man, that even no matter where you're at today, no matter what situation or circumstance you are facing, friend, listen, there is always reason for hope and a sense of peace in life, knowing that Jesus himself is interceding for you. Maybe not to take away the pain or the suffering, but to strengthen you in the midst of it. So as we have noted, God made a promise way back in Genesis 3 even when sin entered the world that, that through the avenue of prophecy that God made then that, that, that he would um, fulfill his promise in the coming Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Um, and so great sorrow accompanied the birth of Jesus. And the reason for that was because of the evil and sinful heart of Herod. And God used it still to point you and me to hope. And so the promise didn't end in pain, right? The, the promise didn't end in the midst of the pain. And so let's use the prophecy we're talking about today, the suffering that took place surrounding the birth of Jesus. Let's use that to ask a question about God. Remember, we're chasing after that. What does fulfilled prophecy teach us about God? We've mentioned that our, our understanding of God often begins with questions. As we live life, we have questions, and that's the way of exploring. And so just as a bit of a side note, parents, grandparents, listen, I want to encourage you with something, that it's okay if your children ask questions. It's okay if they wonder, like, things about God and, and maybe, you know, not understanding, and, and it's okay. And sometimes, here's what... I know this has been my temptation, and, and I've seen it in others as we've talked. Like, um, we get intimidated, right, when our children start asking those hard questions. And, and we, we tend to, like, shut them down because, ah, I don't know how to answer that, right? And, like, and so, well, you know, why do we believe that? Well, just because that's what we've always believed, right? Or why do we do that? Just because that's what we do as Christians. No, listen, I want to encourage you, like, explore the scriptures with them. Don't let the intimidation of, I don't know how to answer that. Like, don't let that, like, lead you down a path of just kind of shutting, like, explore the question with them. 
go to the word of God together, right? And, and sit down with them and, and see what does God say about that. Um, that's a great practice and mindset to have. So um, here, here's one thing I want to try and draw the message together today with is this, is that most often what causes us to question God is pain and suffering, right? Most often what causes us to question God is, is pain and suffering. I, if God is good or if God is loving, you know, why does he allow fill in the blank? Um, if, if God can, you know, if God is all that, you know, all that, then, then why doesn't he do something about whatever, right? It's oftentimes the suffering that causes us to question God. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about the fact that fulfilled prophecy leads us to conclude that God will do what he says he'll do, right? Over a course of hundreds of years, God fulfilling what he said he would do. Um, I want to I take another kind of road with that for a moment and, and ask the question today, not only will God do what he says he'll do, but can. Can. Everybody say the word can. Can God do what he says he'll do? Right? There's a difference, isn't there? there? There's a difference of someone saying they will do something and actually having the ability to do it, right? Now, like, for example, if one of my children were to come up to me and say, hey, mom, dad, you know, we know that when we lived in Southern California, we fell in love with San Diego area and Coronado Island in particular. I don't know if you've ever been there, but fabulous place to visit if you ever, you know, have the, have the uh, opportunity to go. But if one of my children came to me and said, Dad, you know, like you're going to retire or as Colin likes to say, redeploy, right? Uh, retool is the word I like to use. But, you know, Dad, when you get to be like 70, right? I mean, I hope I can preach and minister to us. So t- the year 2043 sounds so far off, doesn't it, right? I've turned 50, so 20 years. Like, hey, Dad, Mom, when, when in 2043, when you get to that point, like, I want to buy you a house on Coronado Island. Like, yeah. <laughs> and I would say to them, like, that's great, right? And then I'm going to walk away and go, that is never going to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, they can say they want to. They can say they will. But can they? And it's kind of the same, I just wonder, like, and maybe you've never thought about it this way before, but as we think about God and we grapple with, like, what is God like and who is he? Like, we have to wrestle with it. Will God, like, he makes these promises. And our salvation is one of those, right? I mean, it's one thing to believe, like, yep, I'm forgiven and saved, but, but man, future and heaven and those things that are, like, so big for us, it's, like, hard to wrap our brains around. And, and will God, right? I just wonder if there lingers in the back of our mind as we grapple with that, even this further question of, can God? Like, is he capable? Is he powerful enough? Can God do what he says he'll do? Our hope rests in the fact that not only does God say he will do something, but he can actually do it. And I think the fulfilled prophecies that we're looking at, right, doesn't it teach us that? I mean, just looking at some of these things and realizing all of the, all of the, the, the wonder and the wow of, of one man fulfilling so many prophecies in such a way that was so clear, like, 
does that lead us to conclude not only that God will, but God, like he's powerful enough to do what he says he'll do. I think the scriptures testify to that time and time again. So as we think about God, we we're willing to arrive at a place to understand our suffering does not mean God can't. Right? The suffering that we see here in Matthew chapter 2 didn't mean that God can't fulfill his promise. You know, that somehow God is, is you know, uh, allowing something here that, that like, no, nah, like this was outside. No, this was within the, the bounds of his sovereignty. Again, it was the evil heart of Herod that God permits in such a way. But, but, but God can fulfill what he says he will do. One of the stories that brings me such confidence of this is found in Daniel chapter 3, going back to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I referenced earlier. A uh, very common story that, that you probably will recall as I get into it. But, you know, when, when Nebuchadnezzar sets up his idol and he tells everybody you have to bow down and worship this idol or you'll die. And, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand and don't bow the knee. And so they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar and, and he's giving them a hard time. And he says to them, right, as he's lighting up the, the, the furnace, the fiery furnace and all of this. And he says to them, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Right? Now, what God is going to be able to, to, like, look at that? Like, I mean, you're right here. I have guys that can throw you in there. What God is going to be able to keep you from that? And this is their response in Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, check this out, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't have to defend God in this, Right? If this be so, right, if, if you end up throwing us into that fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. And you see the confidence there, the trust in God. He will. He can. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But I love verse 18. There's three so powerful words here in the midst of that because it doesn't stop there. In the midst of their confidence in God and their trust in him, this is what they say. But if not. But if not. It's not that God can't. But if God were to choose not to deliver us. For whatever reason, they go on to say, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Doesn't make a difference, right? We don't have to defend God in this manner. Listen, we know God is perfectly capable, and we believe God will. But if he doesn't, it doesn't make God any less God, right? I love that image of their faith for us. So as we think about God, God has promised um, to deliver us. Someday, right, the eternal perspective of our faith and our hope that we will arrive at a place where there is no more suffering and shame. That's why James can say this in James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because there are lots of fun, you know? No, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
There's the promise, right? God with us in the midst of the God working in us for our good, right? Growing us, strengthening us in Christ-likeness in the midst of the trials. So count it all joy. Because good things can happen even in the midst of the suffering. So we live life with an eternal perspective. We live life with a living hope that God has promised he'll make all things new one day. Right? This, this life we live of 60, 70, 80, 90 years, 100, is but a mist, the Bible says, in comparison to the eternal aspect of life, eternal life. And when our faith is in Jesus Christ, God has promised that he will bring us to be with him in a place where there is no more suffering, where there's no more sorrow, no weeping, no more death. And ultimately a new heaven and a new earth. So in the midst of your life circumstance, right, whatever you're facing today, just remember God promises to be with you always. Will he? Yep. And can he? Is he powerful to be with you in every situation? Yes. And he's promised a peace that is beyond understanding. Will God really do that? Can God give me a peace? It's beyond understanding. Yeah. Right? When the word says we lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. Can God really do that? Can God give us a wisdom in life to live and, and, and manage all of the situations, whether it's family or work or, you know, and all of those day in and day out situations? Can God give to us a wisdom that is from above? Yeah. Ask him. Our hope, I believe, means God does do what he says he will do, and God will do it, right? He can, and he will. And may we find rest in that. I want to leave you with this verse from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. This is on the front of the wall of the front office here at the church. I love reading it every once in a while when I... I go in there just to keep my mind focused on it. Romans 15, if you were looking for a verse to memorize, write it on a three-by-five card, something, right? Keep it in front of you. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. There it is, that hope that is at the foundation of everything God sovereignly ordains, that he sovereignly, which is your life and mine, he offers to us this amazing hope in the midst of it all. And may the Spirit strengthen us to walk in that hope. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, as we finish this time together today of focusing on your word, I pray that your spirit would take the truth that we have discussed and knowing that each of us right now are in a different circumstance, a different situation in life. Your word tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And we know that life is full of a mixture of both. And so whether today we are of a heart of rejoicing or whether we're of a heart of weeping, we know that you are with us. 
we know that you desire to be glorified and you will be glorified in those situations as we lean upon you. So take this word today, Lord, and whatever circumstance we're in, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our true teacher. Help us to understand what we need to to understand and what we need to hear, Lord, in the midst of our context, to strengthen us, to grow us, to build us up in Christ Jesus. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Thank you for being such an incredible and amazing God. May we embrace who your word teaches us that you are. In Jesus' name.